Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. My name is Katie, and I am a history instructor at the University of Cincinnati. My name is Emily. I am currently living in the rectory with Katie. I am working at BB Bop and attempting to start my career as an industrial designer. Hi, I'm Anne. I used to live at the rectory with Katie, and now I am home in Toledo, Ohio, in my childhood home, and I am a full time caregiver to my mother. Who came to visit yesterday? <gasps> Who came? Steven! Oh, wonderful! And why did Steven come? Because we had a dead snake in our basement, a headless dead snake. I never even laid eyes on it. I was like, I'm just, I'm just gonna wait for that to stop. We can hear off. Bennett. That is hilarious. <laughs> what even uh, is that noise? Why? You've got a hairball or something in my throat. Oh, oh I think he was just chewing on this leg, and now we have hairy hairball. <gasps> oh, honey. Is he a cat or is he a dog? You decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a dead snake in our basement, and it was headless, according to Katie. I never actually laid eyes on it, but, like, we just both reached a point this week where we were not emotionally equipped <laughs> to deal with that, so... Uh, we were like, who can we call Steven? And he came over and, like, just picked it up and threw it in the trash can for us. Yeah. Uh, These are the goals. These are the goals of friends. I know. We, you know, and single people, like, we take each other to the doctor. Mm-hmm. We get dead snakes out of each other's basements. Yeah. We recommend bath towels. This is how the world bath. goes around. Oh, yeah. Like, we had a backup plan. We were like, if Steven's not available to come over, our next call is going to be to Hannah and Franklin because they're nearby, and one of the two of them surely must be available to come over and help with this problem, and they could probably stomach it. Surely. (laughs) Not one than the other, so. This is... Yeah. (laughs) We, like, had it. The machinations were all worked out. We were like, we are not touching this snake. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. No. 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 And what a cool thing, like, you were reaching out to a married couple, you know, too. It wasn't like, I'm only going to reach out to my single people friends. I'm also going to reach out. Like, that's yeah. what communi- community encompasses all these people. It's not just, like, all the single people, like, going off in a little quadrant and, like, relying right. on each other. It's that, like, everybody, <laughs> everybody is involved. Yeah. Like... Uh, that makes me think about single people groups in church and just how, like, churches so often segregate people based on their relationship status and, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, 
when I would come home from school and college, people at church would ask me, like, are you dating anybody? And they would never ask about, like, my professional life, which I actually had, unlike my peers. So I did co-ops, you know. It's like, I have a goddamn resume. <laughs> and you're like, so are you dating anyone? And I remember one time I was a bridesmaid in my friend's wedding, and the pastor that was officiating the wedding had also been the youth pastor for myself and the bride when we were growing up and the groom. Um, there's no escaping the church bubble sometimes. <laughs> and he was like, just talking to me. He was like, so how have you been? I was like, really good. Like I've been working at these different places, these different companies doing design work. He was like, that's great. Like, are you dating anyone? I was like, well, no, but like, it's really okay. Cause I've been doing all this other stuff. And he was like, well, you'll find someone. I know you'll find someone. And I'm like, I don't care if I do. Like, I don't, I don't know how to explain to you, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, what's the measure of a, like, happy, successful life? Yeah. It was just like he refused to engage with my attempts to talk about career. And it's like, why, though? Probably partly because he doesn't understand what you do. Oh, yeah. He's been married since he was 21. I do kind of do an esoteric thing, too. Like, nobody, <laughs> nobody knows what industrial design is. It's just, a, nobody knows. Which is kind of, that's what we like about it, though. We don't like being in the spotlight. We like being behind the scenes. But... Yeah, I called you an industrial engineer for, like, the first three years I knew you. So I it's mean, it's fine. Like, that just makes me sound smarter than I actually am. Like... <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if what he was encountering also was, um, my friends got married and they were having a very small wedding. And so when they were like casually bringing up in conversation, the fact that they were getting married two people who weren't going to be invited to the wedding, but it, they had like just gotten engaged. Everyone would said, Oh, well I'll make sure to clear my calendar so I can come. And they were so uncomfortable with that situation because we're like oh they didn't know should we tell them right now that they're not coming and they just like mentioned we're gonna have a really tiny wedding and so they were telling me about it and I was like I think I think part of that is just words thrown at you that mean we love and support this you know, like, yeah, this yeah. isn't necessarily, like, they're going to be very disappointed if they don't come to this wedding. This is just them saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited for you. It's not an expectation. So I wonder if the man you encountered could only see your life in this very particular way. And he was throwing words at you to say, I hope you'll find someone one day, right? I hope that you will be successful. I hope that you will be happy. I hope that you will be. And his definition of it is narrow and your definition is different. And I wonder if sometimes people just can't get out of their pattern enough to, enough to compute. Ah, Emily is telling me her career is going really well. Shift. Mm -hmm you know, like pivot into this lane and, and support her in this way instead of what it felt like pointing out the gaps. 
well, here's, you know, oh, your career's going well, but do you have someone? And you always feel like you don't quite measure up in that scenario. And that's why that person might not necessarily, you know, is not trying to make you feel small. But because they are unable to get out of their cultural pattern and lens, they can't see you. And and then you don't feel valued. Mm -hmm. Because they're just like, whatever. And so I was just like... I'm sure, I'm sure I have done something like that to someone, someone else. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, I wish I could pivot faster. And this is how we learn, right? We are, we don't want to hurt the people that we care about. If I'm happy. They're asking if I'm, you know, they're asking if I'm in a good place, all these things. They're asking about my life. They just don't know how to use the right words. Maybe. Yeah. It's a lot. That's the most gracious read I've ever <laughs> on that so when you encounter it so much you want to think there's something else going on or you want to think that they're they just don't quite have the other kinds of language yet yeah I think and I think you're right that like the people asking the questions do like genuinely care about you or else they wouldn't be asking the questions but yeah I think it does just kind of speak to the wider church culture too of like a lot of Christians grew up just kind of thinking yeah like I'll just be married by the time I'm 25 30 ish you know for sure by then and probably have a kid but like so when that doesn't happen then people are kind of like eh like (laughs) This is the recipe of happiness that I have instilled in my own life. Why haven't you? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm actually fine. And you would be fine too. You know, yeah. if your life yeah. had taken a different path, it would have been okay. Exactly. It's like there's no right or wrong path. It's just different choices. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think sometimes, I think Christians have a hard time with that sometimes. So I think we always want to feel like we're doing what's morally correct. Mm. You know, like, what does God want me to do? Like, what am I called to do in this moment? Like, what what's the right thing to do? When a lot of times it's like, well, these options are all actually very fine. And like, any one of them would be God pleasing. It, it's kind of up to you. Like, yeah, yeah that's a lot of weight on someone's life, right? Like that mm-hmm. I have to make these choices amongst options. It's simultaneously scarier and more comforting to think there's a plan and I have to wait for the plan. You know, it's like Dwight Schrute on the, uh, the uh, roof of the office <laughs> waiting for the CIA to, you know, message him and tell him what the plan is, but it's just Pam and Jim, you know, who've been running the scam on him for weeks. Um, Uh, So the idea that there's not a plan that I'm hearing about, something is wrong, you know, but then when you, when you take some of the weight on yourself, that's also a relief and it's also scary. Mm -hmm. We tell this to high school students too about picking a college. Yeah. And part of that is so much pressure. College is cultivating, you know, in this huge marketplace of education, we are the right choice for you. You know, and so these students going, oh, my gosh, there is a right choice. And if I pick the wrong college, it's like, no, then you can transfer (laughs) or then you can take a break. 
or yeah, that's fine. But I think um, I have not known a lot of people who have gone into an undergrad program and then dropped out, but I've known just mm -hmm. a few and they have felt like the most Titanic failures on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we probably, it's probably your whole family and your, your peers that wedged you into this when it probably was not the right decision for you in the first place, but we gave you, we didn't give you other legitimate options of what your life could look like because you're middle class. That means one thing that means college. Yeah. And it means right away. It means right away. High school. Right after and high it school. means not community college. Right. Um, and even switching majors within the same university is like, oh, like, you don't know what you're doing with your life. You're just, you know, screwing around. I have one cousin that changed majors four times, and he was in undergrad forever. But, I mean, now he's an educator, and, I mean, he is he an educator. He was an educator. Now I believe he works in banking somehow. Don't, I don't know how that <laughs> happened. But, yeah, but he's chill with his life, you know? And it's like, you know, yeah. It can be done, you know? Different paths can, can happen. But that transferring in undergrad happened to me. That's my story. Yeah. And... I felt so trapped and I felt like such a failure and I was just like my world was closing in on me and my mother just said you know you can leave and I was like what it hadn't it had not even occurred to me that I had agency to change the path because yeah, I cause yeah I mean, college is the first time when a lot of us have that agency, right? Like, up until that point, it's a pretty straightforward path through grade school and then middle school and then high school. And then you get to college and all of a sudden, you can go wherever you want to <laughs> in college or outside of college. So... So, and, Anne, when your mom said that to you, did you then know what the right next step was? Or was it just the fact that there could be steps that opened the doors for you to find where you should be? Yeah, I had no idea, like, where I would end up. I just knew there was a window and I could jump out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. No, a, a low, a low first floor window. <laughs> A door opened, so she didn't have to right. open a window and jump out of it. Right. No, no, no. Like, I, no, I feel that. Because, like, <laughs> well, because I had my mom say the same thing to me <laughs> when I was in industrial design because I was having so many issues with my mental health. And at one point, I was, like, crying with her on the phone, and she was crying. And she just said, just come home. Just come home. Like, you're so miserable. Just come home. And I was like... No, I realized like I wanted to stay, but it was only because she had given me the option to leave, if that makes sense. Like I knew there was that window to jump out of and just knowing that I was like, okay, like, but I think this is where I'm supposed to be like, so I stayed. And it gives you options when you, yeah. I had so swallowed the narrative of, 
you know, you go on this path, you made these decisions and no one else did. You got, you know, if you're miserable, it's your own dang fault. And now you have to suffer and stay committed to the place that you, you said you wanted this. And I mean, this gets to consent culture. I mean, this gets to so many things you said, and now I get to hold you to it and that we internalize that. I said, so now I have to comply, even though everything in me is saying, get out. You don't even know there's a path to get out. You don't even know you're not allowed it, you know? So. Yeah. Some of my least favorite words are, but I thought you said, like, if someone says that to me, it doesn't matter what comes next. I'm already mad. Yeah. (laughs) Already done. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I understand what you thought I said, but that doesn't mean that's what I said. Or maybe I did say it and maybe I'm doing something else now. Yeah. It's like people are allowed to change their minds. Yeah. Oh, that really does get at consent culture, don't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it do. And how do you, how do you teach people? How do you... Like, I mean, I used to teach college, right? So it's like, how do you, how do you teach people to see options? How do you teach people to see flexibility? I mean, I was teaching people how to write and I could be very dogmatic about that. You write in this particular way to get these particular goals met to reach this particular audience. But how do we be flexible about that? And how do we make sure that you as the writer have agency and you are making decisions that you think are appropriate? And you're going to be writing to a lot of different people. You're not only going to be writing to the man, you know, the people who will decide your fate. You will also be writing to your friends. You will also be trying to convince them about what concert to go to and where to eat afterwards. Like you will, you will be using language with people in all these different ways. And those ways matter too. I think we privilege or we put value on certain experiences in life. And we say, these are the things. And then we don't value the everyday stuff or the, you know, the stuff that seems small. And you're like, no, all of it matters. And all of it helps create who you are. So that the more you know who you are and how you talk and what do you think is important, the more you can advocate for yourself and speak up. (laughs) But a lot of, like, students would come to me and just say, just tell me, just tell me what you want. Tell me what you want to hear, and I will do it. Tell me what you need from me, and I will do it, and I will get an A. And I was like, that mentality, I'm so sorry that you have indoctrinated, (laughs) you know? You've been indoctrinated in that system of just, here's what you want, let me perform for you. And I was like, I really want you to figure out what you want. And they were like, no, I don't want that. I was like, I know. I want you to figure out what do you think? What do you value? And how can you use information to build that up? Not just going off, doing whatever the hell you want. How to be informed about your path and what you think. But you're, you're driving the ship, my friend, you know? So taking ownership of that. And then there are, when you're in the front seat of your life... You can see so much more and you can be like, hmm, I am going to leave. I am going to get out of this relationship. I am going to speak to that person. I'm going to have that conversation because it's important to me. It reorients, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think conversely too, you then have to figure out, you know, when do I stay the course? Like when do I stick it out? Right. When do I stand by this and refuse to move? Um, because I have now realized that I have the flexibility and freedom to leave or change my path. Um, yeah. And that's so, a whole other thing. So some people learn once I've said yes or no or mm-hmm. whatever, that is, I must carry that out until I die. Right. Yeah. Other people learn, uh, anytime I feel pressure, I'm going to deviate. Like I'm going to get away from that pressure. I'm going to get away from, um, the discomfort. And so they learn how to navigate their whole lives by avoiding pain. And so they become yeah, so wishy-washy. You don't know what's going on. And so both of those things are, are bad news. And neither of those positions, um, takes wisdom, maturity, resilience, I mean, even leaving uh, leaving a situation that is not good for you takes resilience, but and so does staying. But the difference is knowing how to choose the right thing for that circumstance and for the people around you and for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes a really long time to figure that out. And sometimes yeah. you have backpacks of cultural baggage that you have to like take off in order to see wow I have been influenced unconsciously influenced to make a decision to stay or make a decision to leave it isn't me it's how I've been taught or that like I'm thinking of marriage now like uh someone was talking to me it might have been you Katie about uh when a woman says I do and yes at the altar, the implication oh, is she is saying yes to any and all sexual encounters with her husband. Like that one yes is a blanket yep. consent for the rest of her life. And it's just like, oh my gosh. I read an article by a pastor who, who explicitly said that. When my wife said yes to me, she said, and I just felt all the blood drain out of my body. And I was like, you have misunderstood. You have made a mistake. And I hope she has corrected you because that is not correct. Oh, but you know what? I think legally and theologically and socially, we have told women that. Yeah. Once you say yes to the altar, that is a yes permanently, always. There's no more no. And it's like, no, that's not correct. That's not okay. Or anything else. Any other kind of behavior or treatment or negotiations over how you're going to spend your finances. Mm -hmm. This is not a yes, a blanket yes. Yeah, I think, I don't remember who I've heard say this, but I've heard the thing that I like to hear couples say is like, I choose my partner every day you know like I continue to choose them and I continue to say yes I want to be in a relationship with you and like I want to do life with you I don't remember who I've heard say that like someone has definitely said that I just wish I could remember but yeah it's not that like blanket 
oh yeah, we said it one, it's like one and done. Yes. It's like, no, like it's a continual commitment and relationship that needs to be like nurtured and that will change over time even. And that sometimes I can say no to you and still mm-hmm. say yes to committing to be in this relationship. That it isn't, if I say no, then that means I don't want anything to, it's so extreme. I don't want anything to do with this relationship because I don't want to have sex right now. Like, no. Uh, One of my, one of my favorite things that happened between a couple, and I just couldn't believe it, um, are the pastor of the church that I used to work at, um, and his wife, it was one of their first times at InterVarsity. And we were gathering to pray or doing something like this and he like threw the ball to her and was like hey do you want to pray and she had just gotten off of work and was kind of harried and she was just like no no thank you and he went okay (laughs) he kind of took it back but I I think that is one of the first times that I have seen a young couple in leadership like try a thing and that person saying nope no, thanks. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm tired. And, but she didn't qualify it. She just said no. And he totally like took it in stride and then like pivoted back. She didn't feel social pressure to perform. Um, he didn't make her feel guilty about saying no and embarrassing him in front of every, everyone. Like none of that happened. It was just like a simple exchange. And that modeled so well what we can do in relationship of of saying we're saying yes we're committing and then sometimes I say no to you and that that doesn't break you that doesn't shatter this you know dependence on me and I'm unreliable now it's no and that's okay I loved it yeah and I wonder if that's why divorces happen you know because Mm -hmm. it's like you said yes to me, and now you're saying the only no left after that extreme consent is a, a deep and visceral no. And it's been so long, and it's been so hard. I've said yes to everything that now the only option I feel left is to say a total and complete no. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't bend because you, you know, you've broken. It's, you've endured too much. And I can understand that. Like, I can understand that, that position of being so overwhelmed that you're like, yeah, no, all done. All done with this. I've said yes to too many things that I shouldn't have. And it's, it's too late. Or I don't know how to say no to you. Or you're an unsafe person to say no to. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have to or people change. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we said before, like people can change their thoughts, people's personalities evolve over time, and it might be that maybe when you got married you were very compatible, but then, you know, a few years or a couple decades down the line you're not anymore. And yeah, I've become much less judgmental about people who get divorced. Um, cause I feel like the Christianity that I was raised in was still pretty judgmental about divorce and was kind of like, yeah, you really shouldn't do it unless it's, you know, um, unless you're in an abusive relationship then obviously, yeah, but otherwise you should really try to work it out. 
it's just like, I don't know. Like, I mean, you have to weigh the emotional labor of working it out, you know, cause it, it does take a lot of work from both parties. And if that's not worth it to you, then yeah, I can understand just being like, yeah, like I don't want to be with you anymore. So for some reason, I'm not going to be able to pull her name out of, out of my hat, but the Democratic Congresswoman, um, the freshman Congresswoman who was... Um, AOC? Yes, thank you. And, and you know what? That's the only way I hear her reference anymore, so I could not tell her full name. But I, a Republican Congress gentleman, uh, I use that term loosely, called her a wretched name on the steps of the Capitol. And um, one of the young guys I was with, I, can't, I just can't remember which of the guys said it, so I don't want to credit uh, incorrectly, but said, it's so good that she, I bet she got a lot of pressure to take that apology, in scare quotes, and just accept it and, and let it be done. Because in the minds of a lot of people, there were other things that needed to be, that needed to happen that were more important. And she was just like, no, that's a terrible apology. I'm not going to accept the one that you've offered me. You need to do better. And um, these guys were saying, we bet she's getting a lot of pressure that she just should say, okay, thank you, and let it let it be now, and not make waves. But for her to say, no, this isn't good enough, and this happens all the time, has made space for other women to say, yes, and it, it's happened to me, and it's happened to me, and it's happened to me. So when we put pressure to, okay, fix it, um, it's all done now, people said sorry, now drop it. Is that something that said to you yesterday, Emily? Drop it, drop it. Or get over it. Was that it? Get over it, get over it. Um, then it protects the people who did wrong in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It also minimizes the experience of whoever it was that was hurt. Right. So. And there's no... And it's hard to press for justice. Actual justice. There's no culpability, there's no further steps, there's no, it's done, we finished it, we talked, we did the thing, we're all done now. Yeah. Uh, People are still dead. (laughs) It's not all done. This is what happened to me on my mission trip when I was in college, that I said there was a problem, and they were like, there's no problem, and then when my school said, no, there was a problem, they were like, oh, you're right, there was a problem, and it's done now, and stop talking. And it was like, I don't feel like we've actually addressed this. And they're like, no, you've received an apology. Stop talking about it. And, you know, and other people in my life, too, were like, you got the apology. Stop talking about it. And that was really disorienting to then go, it's not over for me. Like, there was damage done, and that damage, in fact, has not been addressed. And that apology was not truthful. But no, you got an apology. What more do you want? You want there are bigger things at play here. Mm. It's also, you know, it's like, uh, oh, bigger than me? Oh, bigger than me? Do we want to transition to our closing question? Did you see that yep. I sent it? Yes, sir. 
What are your fave things this week? One one fave TV, music, movie, book. I have mine if you need more time to think, Katie. Yeah, please. Okay. Katie's like, <laughs> please, God. Okay, so mine is a song. It's called Your Light, and it's by the band The Big Moon. And I love it. It's a total bop. And... I love the lyrics. I love how it sounds. Uh, 10 out of 10 recommend. Um, Can you trying read to, some lyrics? Yeah, I'm looking through. I don't... Uh, uh, I love all of them. I'm trying to think if there's, like, a stanza that I love most. Um, uh, okay. So I'm going to say, don't, don't... Don't, don't, blame another night on the moon. Sometimes faith just sings to a different tune. Why do you have to take it out so hard on yourself? We were promised the world, so was everyone else. So maybe it's an end because this don't feel like a start, but every generation probably thought they were the last. And days like this, I forget my darkness and remember your light. And then it's this like boppy like ah 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 and yeah. It bops on. But yeah. That's amazing. That's so yeah. deep for a bop. It's very catchy. I will send I will send you the link after we get off the call because I don't want people's messengers to like boodoop while we're like <laughs> Yeah. Bye everyone, stay safe. This is Katie. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Anne. Bye. This is Emily. I hope everybody has a good week or month. I don't know when we'll be podcasting again, so it's hard to say, but bye. Stay tuned to the episode for our parting gift, a reflection meditation on paths that we take in our lives, maybe how we could see things differently. Hi everyone, it's Anne. I, so I do not live in the rectory. I am currently at my family home in Toledo, Ohio. And we have this little patch of woods behind our house that I have grown up in. But 
I am hilariously ignorant of the kinds of trees and creatures that are back there. And usually when I'm back there, I'm just kind of marching my way through and I'm not really paying attention. I'm mostly looking at the ground to make sure I don't trip and fall over myself. Uh, And today it was just a different experience. All of the paths that we have in our forest are connected. They're loop-de-loops or figure-eights, and so you can roam for a long time without coming to the end or the beginning. And I realized as I was hacking my way through that I was being ridiculous <laughs> because I was, I was walking through the forest as if I had an appointment somewhere in the middle of it, as if there was a destination that I had to arrive quickly at. It was all business. And I realized that I was approaching that walk with the forest the way I approach errands or chores. And I had this mode of being that I hadn't paid attention to. I hadn't checked. I hadn't observed. And the forest with all its twisty roots and uneven ground was asking me to slow down and to pay attention and not just to look at the ground to make sure I didn't fall so I could move as quickly as possible to be done with the forest but to move in such a way that was able to see and focus on something other than the obstacle but I could look up and out that my eyes were somehow freed and my ears were opened and I could be fully present and fully conscious as I walked through the forest. And I wonder, dear listener, if you also find yourself operating in modes that run unchecked, unconscious, And I wonder if there's a place you can go. And it doesn't have to be a park. It could be a place in your own house or home or apartment or neighborhood. A place that is familiar and yet unfamiliar. A place that can help you to pause. That can help you refocus and lift your eyes off of the ground, off of the obstacles and up towards new and beautiful things or out towards people and relationships that you would somehow see the connections that we all share.